Episode 13 of Rigged brings part two of the only interview with the former Hinton chemist who started it all, Annie Dukin. As a reminder, this interview took place a few weeks after Annie was released from prison in March of 2016. If you enjoyed the first half of this on episode 12, get ready for the conclusion of this exclusive interview only here on the Rigged Podcast. Enjoy. Yep. All right, next one. Do you remember how long it works? You know how long Sony worked in the Hinton Laboratory? I honestly couldn't say. Um, when I started there, it was maybe six months later, she uh, moved on with her life to the Amherst lab. And, or, I, it could be longer, but it wasn't um, a very long time. Okay. Did you talk to her? She talked to you about her making her making a move out to the Amherst lab? Oh, she did. I asked her, um, you know, I did ask her, you know, she when she said she was going to the Amherst lab, why she was going. And she said and she wanted to purchase a house. She wanted to, you know, get out of the city and all that stuff and just move on. You know, better, better her life, I guess. Okay. And um, now when she moved out to the Amherst lab, you had more communications with her, correct? Yes. And how... What type of communications would you have? Um, Testing samples, yeah. Um, They had had other uh, similar protocols, but they um, sometimes we would have asked them questions in regards to, hey, how would you do this? Or, you know, um, I'm having a difficult time doing this. Just advice. And we have to check with our supervisor as well. To make sure. But sometimes, when, like, would Mr. Slim ever say, well, why don't you give Jim Hanchett a call out in Amherst or give Sonia a call out in Amherst? Right. Um, just to see, hey, how you guys are doing this? Like, if it was an MDMA pill or something like that, how are you guys doing this? Have you guys seen this logo? Just questions like that. Okay. So is a, it's, it's fair to say that there was a free flow of information between the two labs? Yes. Especially when it came to falsely giving testimony on the stand. Uh, uh, any anything to add on that, guys? Or you want to just go right to the the next one? I'm moving on. Yeah, let's let's just go. Next one, Rand. And I mentioned your name, Jim Hanchett. You know who Jim Hanchett? Yes. And he's the head of the. He was the head of the Amherst Laboratory, correct? Yes. Did you ever have an opportunity to meet Mr. Hanchett in person? I did. And when did you? When did that happen? When he kind of took over the lab because it was somebody else, somebody else prior to that. Alan Stevenson, is that name? You know, Cam Stevenson. Cam, Stevenson. yes, Cam, okay. yeah. And so, did you, you, did you yourself ever go out to the Amherst Laboratory? No. Okay. Uh, so you, Jim came to the, but Jim came to the Hinton Laboratory, correct? That's correct. And do you know why Jim would come to the Hinton Lab? Um, I guess to meet with Charles, discuss stuff. But also he took samples okay. um, from, because we were backlogged, they were also helping us with samples. Okay, so Jim, so he took the overflow. So, yeah, so yeah, okay. I guess. Yeah. yeah, and they would test them out in the Amherst. And then Jim, Jim would bring them back? Yes. Would anyone else come, did anyone else from the Amherst lab visit Hinton, um, if you remember? Sharon? Sharon Salem? I don't know last names, but I think she was the evidence officer. Mm-hmm. Yes, I met her once. 
Did you ever have any conversations, uh, email exchanges with Sharon? I don't recall, no. Do you have any email exchanges with uh, Tim Hanchett? Yes, okay. in regards to testing, I remember. Yeah. Okay. And do you know a woman by the name of Rebecca Ponce? Yes, yeah. And how do you know that name? She was a chemist there. Okay. Did you ever meet her? I believe when she was interviewing, that was the only time I met her. Okay. Was that around the same time you joined the Hanson Laboratory? If you remember. A little bit after. I just don't, I don't remember when she started, maybe a little bit after. Do you ever have any email exchanges with her about testing or difficulties that you may have, were having? Or did she ever reach out to you about difficulties she was having, if you remember? I don't remember ever really having conversations with her. Okay. Well, I have at least one conversation she had with Rebecca Ponce about uh, creating SOPs in July. She asked for all the, the uh, did I send you guys that? Yes. Asked, and, and they had all the Hinton Lab SOP or the Amherst Lab SOPs. So she absolutely was talking to these people. So again, I don't know, WTF, she might just not remember, but let, let's, uh, let's. And that was in, uh, that was after she was effectively benched. Is that right? That's right. That will. So let's, let's, yeah. So, do, uh, so I find that amusing that her punishment for uh, 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 breaching evidence protocols was to make type up the rules that we're all supposed to be following. Type up uh, the protocols because we haven't we haven't been able to uh, we haven't been bothered to do them previously, and she tried to crib them off of what Amherst had. And my memory was Amherst just had dusty books uh, uh, handed right. from the DEA. So, the, so neither of the labs had formal adopted standard operating procedures, which is important for a lab. So they had drafts of various things. In Amherst, they were resorting to uh, a DEA manual from the 60s and then microgram journals uh, from then on. Rebecca Ponce, uh, from time to time in her spare time, would be uh, looking into writing drafts of proposed operating procedures, but those were never adopted. Yeah. And that's what they're discussing when Dukin is uh, taken off the bench, uh, you know, because they discovered that she's taken out 90 samples uh, without um, signing them out of the evidence room. She's then uh, tasked with creating a standard operating procedure for the entire lab, which was never completed. Right. And she actually, I have emails. She, she reached out to her former people at Mass Biologics for SOPs. She reached out to Rhode Island, uh, the Rhode Island Drug Lab for SOPs. She reached all out all over and never actually wrote one. It's crazy. All right. Next one, Randall. All right. Here we go. When you were... When you were working with Sonia, um, did she ever discuss drugs with you? And when I say drugs, I mean in this like sense of recreational use. Did she ever talk to you about that? No. Okay. Did you ever at any time believe she was ever under the influence of any substances while she was at the Hinton Laboratory? No. no. Um, is she a person that you would expect to use drugs? No. And why, why do you say that? Just once again, just by thinking she's working in the lab and not, you know, it's a high risk in itself. She's working in a drug lab. You know, you wouldn't think 
of somebody using. And that's just me being naive. So I've learned that. <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever suspect any of your colleagues, other than aside and apart from Sonia, to be using drugs? No. Oh, there you go, Elias. So they they did ask at least once. Um, but that but other colleagues. Yeah. Right. They didn't say, "Gee, Annie Dukin, you were a high volume person." Yeah. Um, any of the powder end up someplace that it shouldn't have ended up? <laughs> and they didn't like. I mean, she's like, "This was high risk behavior." Like Annie. You were literally faking drug test results in the lab that sent people to prison. Is that not high-risk behavior? One of the reasons why I mentioned earlier, there's that cute moment when Caldwell realizes he was inarticulate about phrasing a question and they have sort of a pause because they, he realizes he's talking to someone who is known to have committed massive fraud. Uh, it's sort of strange how... Um, he's relying on this person at all for anything, right? Right. <laughs> it, it's right. so crazy. It, As the lone it, spokesperson for the, the Hinton lab. Why isn't he talking to Julianne Nazif? What, like, why is, like, I, I know that they talked to her and they had to have. Either they're the most irresponsible, this is the most irresponsible investigation of all time, or, well, or they, they talked to her and they're lying about it. Well, let's 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 get to uh, maybe um, uh, a, a fine point on this one, um, Chris. Uh, my understanding is these these interviews were voluntary. Is that right? So uh, we got some of them in transcript. Oh, you, you mean the? Do you mean the government gave them to me voluntarily? Or oh no, the in, the interviews that were um, were provided to the the government had access to these people. Um, through their own volunteer, their voluntary agreement to be present for the interview, right? Meaning they could refuse. Yeah, or I don't they had a subpoena. They were doing a well. So for the proffer interviews, it's voluntary, and then based upon what they got, they later summons them to the grand jury. And okay. what was interesting about that little note, as an aside, is some of the things that were really interesting from these interviews weren't included. Um, when they were uh, in front of the grand jury, but that's putting that aside for a second. So, the, but the, the the one explanation for why someone might not like might not appear at an interview uh, is you asked, and they said that they either refuse or that they would invoke the fifth. Mm -hmm. So and, that might be a reason why Nasif uh, doesn't appear on any interviews. Is that what you're? I, well, I'm just I'm 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 curious because obviously they knew who she was, and and I don't think there's a suggestion that these investigators were um, um, below a level of competence uh, that would uh, overlook key witnesses. So I'm going to assume that, that this wasn't a, a, a egregious mistake, um, and and so the one possibility is that they did ask to get an interview and and were refused. And I will say that that uh, you know in my personal investigation of Ms. Nasif, I noticed that right when the debacle became public, um, my, my memory uh, is that one of the first things she did was she uh, put a homestead protection on her home, Me meaning she was, you know, in the midst of this debacle, and she was thinking first and foremost about protecting her house. So uh, that's a, um, that tells you where I think the mind uh, of some of these people uh, was, was not on freeing the innocent, uh, 
uh, or uh, uh, righting wrongs or clearing the record. It was really um, self-preservation, I think, for everyone. And Chris, do you have interviews outside of the ones that we're playing here in transcript form? Uh, with well, we, we just had 4,000 pages of stuff from the inspector general's office that we're still sifting through. So it's possible? Okay. Yeah, I didn't see her come up when I scanned through them, but uh, uh, they did interview Salemi. Um, Corey Weather, the attorney general's office, when they're doing these interviews with the Amherst people, had access to what the OIG had obtained earlier. So that's a little unclear. But um, anyway, if, if we find something interesting, I'll surely bring it to your attention. All right. Uh, well, my point is the attorney general's office has assured me that they have no other interviews, but that these were the only ones that ever happened. And they even denied the, uh, the Ponce and Salem interviews existed. Um, all right. Next one, Rand. Here we go. Now, aside from you, um, Mr. Dukan, in, in the issues that you had at the lab, um, you know, when I say the term dry labbing, you know what that is. That's correct. Was there anyone else in the Hanson Laboratory doing that? I don't think so. I don't recall anybody. Okay. And no one, no one just, so when you say that, no one discussed dry labbing with you? No. Um, Nobody discussed taking shortcuts on the test with you? No. Okay. That was just something you were doing on my own. own. Okay. Um, and uh, Sonia never discussed that with you? No. And you never had any email exchanges with her concerning tri-labbing? I don't recall having anything about tri-labbing with her. Um, like I said, the few emails I do have with Sonia was in regards to some pills or something, MDMA issues and that kind of stuff. But I don't recall having anything about trilabbing with Sonia. Okay. And you, like you said to me before, just to reiterate, mm-hmm. there was no one else to the best of your knowledge doing the same conduct as no. that you were um, convicted of. That's correct. Okay. Uh, okay. Interesting. Um, next. Oh, go ahead. I mean, the only thing I would say is with Ferrick's numbers being so much worse than Dukin's, I mean, the only other possibility is she's doing the, the work, but she's zipping around the lab high on cocaine, right? Right. <laughs> it's like double the number of cocaine samples almost that anyone else ever analyzed in the history of the lab. So I guess there is that possibility, but it's not better for the government. <laughs> And honestly, I mean, there there hasn't ever been any proof that anyone else was dry labbing, but it would absolutely not. I mean, would it surprise either one of you guys if someone else was dry labbing in that lab? Well, I I reject or don't like the term dry labbing because I don't think it's describing what actually happened here. I mean, what what actually happened here is that people who had samples that were not did not contain illegal narcotics had their results. Um, certify to contain narcotics and 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 ruling out inadvertent contamination the only other explanation is is physical tampering we also know that samples were returned with the wrong results certified um, which again could be contamination or could be um, foul play 
And dry labbing doesn't tell you that either of those is going to happen. Dry labbing doesn't cause contamination and dry labbing doesn't cause certification of, um, uh, 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 of incorrect results. What, it would, what dry labbing would create is a false claim of a preliminary test that didn't take place and the likelihood of incongruent results. And my understanding is incongruent results would simply should, should have ended it, but instead resulted in, quote unquote, a return. And a return meant that the secondary chemist in a two chemist system, so don't even worry about what was happening in one chemist system, um, sends it back to the first chemist and said, I didn't like the results, do it again. And Annie Dukin has claimed at that point, she would, quote, clean up the results by maybe sprinkling in a little cocaine. Um, and that's how innocent people went to prison. Um, but that's not, that's not part of dry labbing is the second go around where you then tamper with the results. So I've not heard anyone equate dry labbing to tampering other than Annie Dukin. Isn't, didn't they say dry labbing is just looking at it and saying it's cocaine without even. Right. But, but that doesn't then turn it into cocaine. So right. So the question is, is she claimed she was dry labbing after being confronted and then saying that I, I then, it, to, uh, when I got a return, I then, quote unquote, cleaned up the results. And that means contaminating it with cocaine. Yeah. So my question is, is there any suggestion that, that there were other results other than Annie Dukin's where that happened? Yes. Well, yeah. And also in the new OIG materials, um, as I said, it's like 4,000 pages long. We haven't finished going through them, but there are instances where the lawyers from the OIG are asking certain chemists about samples that they worked on who are not any Lugan, where they said something was cocaine and it turned out heroin. So that's indicative of potential dry labbing. Yep. Wow. All right, guys. That uh, next, next one, Rand. All right, here we go. Now, in terms of some of those email exchanges, you, you talked about different types of tests and I think you had mentioned some designer drugs, MDMA. And, yeah. And is it fair to say that there were some designer drugs that would occasionally come into the lab? And when I say designer drugs, I mean club drugs, ecstasy, and those types of things that you, as a chemist, you didn't know what they were initially? Right. Um, like is, it, and are there any specific ones that you remember? Um, I just recall um, like MDMA, MDA, there were other cutting agents coming in. I can't remember. Um, there was something coming in that was cut with it. I don't remember the drug name. I couldn't tell you, but I, we, <clears throat> I had contacted um, the Amherst lab to ask them what were they doing, what were they seeing, okay. um, per the request of Peter Pero and Charles Salemi, because, um, you know, even oxycodones, what they were cut with, the different... Um, you were getting negative oxycodones versus positive ones, but they had little speckles in them. I remember that specifically because it stuck out in my head. But we would ask them, um, what are you guys seeing this? Um, or what are you guys doing in the sense of testing for it? All right. So, so we know the answer. <laughs> well, first of all, can we just take uh, go off to the low-hanging fruit? Have you seen any emails where Annie Dukin is asking what people are, quote, seeing, you know, operationally. Um, uh, I haven't seen one of those. And that's not what the email that you read 
uh, no. the email string was. Yeah. And and second, I think what, what she the other uh, variant she tried to suggest is that they were asking what what are you, um, uh, what are your procedures for using, uh, and that's not asked. Um, that that's not in the email exchange either. It's it's what are you doing policy wise for something that's not illegal. Uh, because we're saying it's illegal, and boy, it would sure be embarrassing if you weren't saying it was illegal. Um, I like how she pointed out that she was directed to make that communication by uh, Mr. Piero and I think Mr. Salemi. Why? Because they didn't have email? <laughs> like, why is she doing it? Yeah. Um, like, you go do this, Annie. Like, I, I, I'm the supervisor here. I need to, and Piero was the one that asked Julianne Nasif about that. So he was right. reaching out. We have an email of that. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, uh, next one, it's cleaning up of sample. You're going to like this one, uh, Ilias. Go ahead. Now, Councilor Sir, coming back to an earlier <clears throat> question I asked, I talked to you about standards and the cleaning up of a sample in order to be used as a standard. Um, in terms of these club drugs or um, pill, uh, alleged uh, controlled substances that were in pill form, was that ever done in the lab, to the best of your knowledge? Were people taking pills that were placement samples? cleaning them up and running them in the machinery? I've never seen pills no. done that way. No. Okay. Uh, can you briefly describe for us like what the steps, if, if, a, if an unknown pill came in, mm -hmm. you as a chemist, what would you do? So if an unknown pill came, we'll do a description of the pill as best as our knowledge, um, just the markings, anything that stuck out, like the color, um, weight of pills, get a net weight, um, and then according to the protocol, like I said, 10% or whatever it was, um, you would test that amount. You do color tests on them. You would go, actually, you would go and look it up in the PDR or the index. I can't remember the index name. Um, if you couldn't find it in there, um, we treat it as an unknown. And then you would test them doing chemical testing, so preliminary spot testing, um, run it through the GC, the gas chromatography. Um, to see if you're getting anything, and then send it into mass spec to see um, they can treat it as an unknown, or if when you run it with the GC, you have a suspect what it could be, send it in with a question mark, MDMA question mark, or, um, you know, but they treat it as an unknown, and they run it through an unknown um, on the mass spec to get an idea, look at each peak, see what it is. And if there's something of uh, a narcotic, then we would run it with the standard. If not, they can treat it as a negative and call it negative. Okay. So to the best of your knowledge, there were always pill standards on hand for you to use as a chemist. Yes. You never had to go to, to Mr. Salemi and say, you know, we're out of oxycodone standards or anything. You do. If we were in mass spec and you did not have, it was just a small amount or the, it wasn't sufficient enough for um, the mass spec to pick up with the needle, we would go say we need oxycodone standards or if it's been expired or it's been, or if it, um, some of the standards deteriorate over time. So, oh, I've been seeing a second peak. Can we make new standards? And they, they would have to go make it or, um, get the sample, the standards out and follow the protocol of making the standards. Okay, so when you say make a standard, can you so explain you go, that 
So making a standard means you purchase an actual standard from the outside company and then you follow the protocol of how okay. to make the standard. It's not, not that cleaning up. No, it's not oh, cleaning okay. up. It's That's... actually the actual uh, standard. Okay. Uh... Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I sent Caldwell a copy of that um, form where it says it's it's all written by Annie Dukin except the parts where Peter Pirro and Charles Salemi signed off on it saying heroin secondary standard. And uh, there's a bunch of other ones that identify the, the exact sample number. So the, the idea that uh, she's saying nothing like that was ever used in the machines and it was all from pharmaceutical companies is it, just baloney. Bullshit. <laughs> I mean, we we know like they were they were doing it. Like even Jim Hanchett said he thought that that's what Salemi was doing. And and if they didn't email Salemi or if they didn't interview Salemi and ask him about that as part of this investigation, then that is just that is criminal. If they didn't do that, which but I know that they did. You know, you know they did. Go ahead, uh, Ilias. Well, I, you know, the the thing that struck me, um, having combed through the state police interviews of the Hinton lab people um, conducted in 2012, was a reference that Peter Pirro made to Annie Dukin uh, that at some point in the past, she had a primary responsibility of, quote, making up standards, um, sort of a unique responsibility, I should say, uh, that was taken away from her because she couldn't do it in a timely fashion. And I'm struggling to understand how the phrase making up standards, I understand that there's a, there's a, there's a, a translation that takes place from uh, when you have the, the, the jar of, let's say, stuff purchased from a, a pharmaceutical where you're going to prepare your aliquots. But I don't believe and understand that to be a full-time job. I understand that to be part and parcel of your GCMS testing. So the idea that someone would be assigned the duty of quote, making up standards and then not being able to do that in a timely fashion and have that taken away from you. Um, I'm, I'm unclear why no one ever got to the bottom of at least what Mr. Pirro meant by that phrase, making up standards, and then where the documentary evidence for when it was taken away from her because she wasn't doing it in a timely fashion. Because if you overlay what Chris has uncovered and what Mr. Hanchet has said, there's a very real suggestion that in fact, one of Annie Dukin's jobs was to take stuff like the Fall River sample and keep perpetually generating um, what they call charitably secondary standards. Uh, and that that might have been under the nose of the state police and the AG's office, this and OIG, the entire time. And, well, she, and if that's the case, she's lied about it multiple times. I'm sorry, Chris. Well, she was definitely doing that with heroin for a number of years because I've got the documents, but also to be fair, uh, we looked into some of the other standards and they did have some legit standards that she was actually just preparing uh, for use in the lab, but this was also part of her duty. So the fact that, so let's say the AG's office didn't understand that at first and um, it's sort of unclear and they, uh, may not recognize it as an issue. The testimony is ambiguous. But once the defense attorney sends you documents and says, this is a problem, you need to look into this, it, the response shouldn't be, thanks, and then that's it, right? Right. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, th this gets to sort of the issue 
um, that that I was struck by at the there was a trial a civil trial. Uh, my understanding uh, is that it's the only one that's actually taken place um, um, uh, involving the uh, the lab um, misconduct, uh, and it was called Jones v. Hahn. And in that trial, there almost uh, many of the people we talked about, uh, aside from Annie Duke, and uh, testified at that trial, including Peter Pirro. Um, and and what I was struck by his testimony was he couldn't articulate what Annie Dukin had been doing wrong, but that there was a palpable sense that what she had been doing wrong uh, that was present at Hinton Lab for many years, and yet it was never documented. And Mr. Salemi and, and, and Ms. Nassif were uh, intent on postdating those concerns so that it was um, late enough that, that it wouldn't affect people. Uh, and, and, and I was struck by why Mr. Pirro couldn't articulate what Annie Dukin was doing that was wrong. Um, and yet he had seen it, uh, and was worried about it. And I wonder if, and this is speculation now on my part, but I mean, one reason you wouldn't be able to articulate why someone was doing something wrong is if you had in fact told them to do it or were aware of them doing it. Uh, and so if this was a, a lab-wide practice uh, of, of, of dipping into seized samples and, and concocting um, uh, what, what are, are charitably called secondary standards, um, no one's going to admit to that. And so is, it was, all, was Annie Dukin sort of set up as a fall, fall guy um, just so that everyone else can, can uh, hope that, there, that no one asks any follow-up questions and, and, and the book can be closed on, on, on this sad chapter. Which is, I mean, her loyalty to this lab and, and to, to the state and to like this false narrative is truly astounding to me. The fact that she's in the position she's in currently yeah. has never flipped, has never like said any, like everyone else was doing this too. Like literally took the bullet, served jail time. Like, well, she wasn't, I don't think she was given. I was raising the issue earlier. This interview happens what in um, March of 2016? Looking up online, um, the parole board on February 24th, 2016 decided to grant her parole. So I'm just wondering if the government had any input on if we use this person as a witness, let her out. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and and Jamie, to answer your question, I mean, this is uh, this is actually a, 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 a um, you know uh, the government gets to decide whether someone flips um, uh, or not, and 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 they can they can silence you by simply prosecuting you, right? If they prosecute you, you're you're going to invoke your fifth, and you're not going to fess up. Uh, you know, you are fessing up. If you say, Mr. Salemi told me to dry lab, you are admitting that you're dry labbing and you're yeah. not going to get any bonus points and a jury is not going to acquit you because your boss told you to do it. That's the Nuremberg defense and, and it's not supposed to work. No. Um, so the government, interestingly, didn't offer her, I think, the same deal that she got in 2016, which is, hey, you can say whatever you want. We're not going to prosecute you. Why don't you rat out your bosses? Uh, and, and, and so the government essentially chose to contain this and they did the exact same thing. My understanding with Sonia Farak, um, which is that they, they had her take the fall, uh, and, and did not give her an opportunity to say, do you want to rat out 
uh, anybody. So, so in its in, in in a very direct way, this thing was minimized simply by the criminal the 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 way those criminal prosecutions were handled. All right, last couple well, clips, Rand. Sorry, it's, it's running long. No, I'm, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure this next set of clips you wanted me to chop and put together, right? To get the correct. Right. Uh, okay. yeah, let Chris, oh, go ahead. Chris clarify just, something. Just, though. Sorry, they completed uh, guilty in 2013, but you're right. So, like, they didn't bring all of the evidence that they found against her and try to identify all the cases that she tampered with when she pleaded guilty. They selected a handful, and then that was that. Yeah. And she was not given any immunity or any, um, um, there's no jeopardy that attached or, you know, uh, so she, she could, she was under a very real, uh, um, uh, uh, situation of, of, of not wanting to admit, I think further crimes. No, right. well, she pled not guilty at first. And then like, they had like a sham trial for like a, a week or two. And then she just, well, you know, they, well, they, I think it went on for a while and eventually they got a plea bargain and uh, November 22nd, 2013, she pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice, tampering of, with evidence, perjury, falsification of academic records. But again, they selected a handful of instances uh, in order to substantiate those claims. So if they wanted to... Um, they could have brought more charges uh, associated with different cases of tampering. Right. But that would involve not picking up the rug and trying to sweep her under it. All right. Next one, Rand. Here we go. At any point um, in talking with Sonia or just perhaps by word of mouth or rumor, was there ever discussion about the cleaning up of samples to be used as standards in Amherst? In Amherst? All right. I've never heard of any of that, no. Okay. Um, now, I want to talk to you briefly about Class E substances. Okay. Okay. And um, I'm going to show you something. Well, I'm gonna ask, let me ask you first a question on Class E substances. It's fair to say sometimes Class E substances would come into the lab and they wouldn't be um, classified under 94C, correct? Uh, elaborate, because I don't understand what you mean. Okay, please, then ask me a question. All right. Um, what do you mean by it wouldn't be called, classified under... Oh, under 94C, 94C yeah. general laws? Yeah. Well, say if you got a substance and perhaps, for example, it was federally scheduled... Okay. As an illegal narcotic, mm -hmm. but it wasn't in Massachusetts. What would be the policies and procedures moving forward at the lab in, in, in putting a classification on that drug? Um, oh, um, it might be called negative okay. in cases. Um, if we couldn't find it in the PDR or a uh, approved literature, um, it would be called a class E. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to show you an email. And this is an email exchange, Miss um, Dukan, between you and Sonia. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar to what you were telling me about testing drugs. So I just want you and your sure, trainers to take a look at it. This, I believe, is page two and begins with Hi, Annie. So I'm just going to read it and go through this whole chain here. 
continues back up. And I think this will shed a little light on, okay. on what I'm trying to get across. The point I'm trying to get across. Okay? So, um, so here, I'll show you. I've made notation after I will Okay, so this is an email chain between you and Kim, Kim and Sonia Farrakh, and it's dated. I just want to make it clear for the record. Friday, April 22nd, 2011, it was sent by Ms. Farrakh at 11.20 a.m. to you. And um, your name is listed under your DEPH email as Amy Khan? That's correct. Okay, and there was a couple of exchanges on that email, and the, the, the exchanges go up through Friday, April 22 at 11.45 a.m., and Specifically, what it what it is, and it's the point I was trying to get to earlier, um, to the drug BZP. Yes. Okay. And what is, if you recall, what is BZP? I don't recall what that is. Okay. <laughs> I, I, do you remember this email? I do remember the email. <laughs> okay. Um, now, I think, believe, uh, it was indicated in this email, it was, re you report BZP. Mm -hmm. I know you don't recall, but you currently call it a Class E but you go on to explain to Ms. Farak that it is a Schedule One federally, but it's not scheduled in the MGL. Right. And so could you just explain just what, what that means and what so, you're trying to tell Ms. Farak? So I would look up consulting Charles Salemi and Peter Pero um, before I sent this email out. Okay. I would consult with them and tell them, hey, that this Sonia is questioning this. Um, and I would either show them the email or explain to them. And then we would look it up and schedule federally one means if you have a class, you have, there are charges that we brought up. But then the mass general laws, we don't have anything. Um, and so in that case, they can either run it as an unknown and test it, or they call it a class E because it's federally scheduled. And then it's up to the supervisor to determine if we should call it a classy or call it negative. Okay. Um, that. Wow. I. That's how I recalled it. Um, so this we, is so this is something I said. I don't mean to cut you off. No. But this is something essentially that you would run run up the chain, so to speak, to your supervisors, yes. and you would seek advice to them. Yes. And it was something that, as you indicated earlier. You know, there was an exchange of communications between the two labs. And these are similar questions that would be asked back and forth. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I'm going to show you another email. Mm -hmm. And this is from you to Charles Salemi. Mm -hmm. um, and it's dated Tuesday, February 28th, 2006. It's okay. 9.45 a.m. And I'm going to show it to you right now. The subject line is question, is Phenoprex a classy substance? And this is just, this is only your email. that was not a response. Okay. So when you look at this, and it's too slummy, it's, I think, believe the bottom email states, I could not find it in the PDR. Right. According to the DA, the substance is a Schedule 4. Right. Can I call this as a Class E? So that, is this a, a similar situation where you would always ask your supervisor? Yep. And they would be the final say? Yes. Okay. But we didn't interview the supervisors, because why would we do that? <laughs> okay, Amy, do you have that email? I, I looked for it. I don't. I don't. Okay. Because what's interesting is, one, that we don't all have that email. Um, but um, that's not referenced in the OIG report. Uh, and what she just said is actually not what the email stream with Sonia at all talks about. Right. Because they're making sure that they're both doing the same thing. She doesn't say 
But, you know, of course, our supervisors have final discretion. Um, uh, uh, and by the way, how on earth could a, a supervisor have discretion on something like this? Right. This is not a discretionary matter. Um, and so the, the, this is one of those situations where, I mean, where do you even begin? Right. The questioning was just so dumb. It's like they're not going over the content of that email. They're coordinating false testimony. Like, did you often do this with other chemists? Would you often say, hey, what are you guys calling this? Because we're calling this and we want to make sure that we get our story straight. I mean, this is like two gangsters saying, hey, we left, you know, the parlor at this time because we whacked the guy at 3 p.m. So just make sure you say we were at Fat Tony's for, you know, four hours in case the feds ask, like, but this is the actual government doing that shit. It's crazy. Sorry for my clumsy analogy. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I can add is as we're going through the new OIG documents, as I mentioned earlier, the one with Charles Salemi, that's like about this general issue and the thought that they would ever ask a lawyer at DPH, like blew his mind. (laughs) (laughs) what but we're the law like seriously like these chemists thought that they were the lawyers they thought that they were the law and making these decisions they never i mean that that's crazy chris that's nuts anyways okay uh i mean that one right there is just like if you go back and listen to what that email actually said and then to hear the alternate reality that was just seemingly accepted by everyone at this sham of an interview is just really jaw-dropping. Let, let's go to the next one, Randall. Second to last. So let me let me ask you just kind of follow up to what you just said. Now, you said you would, you know, you would ask Cam Stevenson or Jim or whomever at the Amherst, you know, just basic questions and how things can be done. You said that the labs are really run differently. When you were in this, you know, the, the procedures and protocols were a little bit different. That's yes. fair, right? So when someone from Amherst said, this is the way we do things, that strike you as maybe sloppy or unusual in terms I, of what you have, what you were doing at Jamaica Plain? Honestly, I like if we were to ask someone and say, "Hey, this is what we do here." My question used to be, "Why are they doing something different?" But I was also told, you know, they have less samples or they do things their way because they don't have this equipment or something like that. So I. Once again, didn't really go forward. Okay. Do they have, uh, probably fair to say that you had better equipment at Hinton than you than they had at Amherst? That's what I've been told. I've never been to Amherst. So I don't know. Okay. Um, is, there, is there anything that you're surprised that we're not asking you? Protocols. That's... Okay. Do you want to say anything about protocols? It's just the protocols are different. Um, and... and you surprised you didn't focus more on that? Yeah. Okay. But like I said, you 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 indicated that they do think they did things at Amherst much differently than they did things at Hinton. There were there were things done differently. Um, I just can't recall. I just remember um, uh, I can't remember it was Jim or Kim that had sent me um, their protocols and it was a little bit different from ours our draft of our protocol. So um, because we were in the process of writing protocols, getting the lab accredited or in that step. So we had to come up with SOPs and that 
So I had asked advice from them as well. Um, so you, you took that, that was a role that you had at Hinton was doing SOPs protocol. I took on that role um, when I stopped doing samples. Okay. Um, and is there anything else about protocols or lack thereof that you think is important for you to mention? I can't think of anything else. And the labs were not accredited, that's correct. No. Right. Okay. Neither of them. They were, when I was there, they were um, now trying to get accredited. Um, like I said, I was attempting, I had, because of my previous job, I had done SOPs and I was put into that place to start writing it and sent a couple of drafts to Charles, but once again, my situation came up, so. My situation. <laughs> situation. So A, I mean, the most important word in there was draft. So right. at the beginning of the clip, it makes it seem like Hinton and Amherst had formal protocols. That is not true. The OIG said it wasn't true. Uh, what they had was a draft of protocols that Dugan was uh, working on after she was caught. Uh, and then some stuff that Rebecca Ponce was working on in her spare time. None of it was formally adopted. But it's also interesting that Dukin, uh I mean, she's showing her, her character here. She's saying, uh, you know, I was working on this and then my situation came up. Uh, in reality, uh, <laughs> you know, they caught her and, and that was the punishment. Right. <laughs> my situation, <laughs> it just... It's like you said, it's her character. And this whole time she doesn't really cop. Like the only thing she does say is that she was dry labbing, but like she doesn't really comp to the fact that she wasn't actually the whole time she was there doing much science. Um, well, I don't so think, I don't think, I mean, my theory is that, that she was uh, uh, simply doing what the others were doing, maybe more of it, but, yeah. um, and I think what you sense is she is again, walking that tightrope of, She's got to admit to something, but she can't. She can't blow the lid off the whole operation, right? She's the the, and I don't know what kind of deal they got with her to to get her to agree to all this because like there are a number of inaccurate statements here, and she's exposed herself yet again to possibly more jail time. Well, I think what 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 might be a suggestion here, I don't know, is that maybe in exchange for uh, uh, walking out early she could go on record and just say, there's nothing to see here. And now right. they will have gotten testimony that, that contains the dam the fallout of the handshake testimony. And then they can, they, they can say case closed. It, why yeah. on earth would a prosecutor in the attorney general's office, uh, after he gets documents that shows a witness was lying, not, not sort of just, uh, you know, uh, She's lying about very material things, and it's easily provable. Uh, you know, it, it's not some minor detail that you could ignore. It goes to the center of what they were investigating. Why do you not make it public? Why do you not reopen the investigation? And why do you not prosecute her for um, these misrepresentations? Right. Well, we because we know what was going on in 2016. And in 2016, there was still a very real effort to keep the lid on this uh, and to keep people in prison 
um, to, to limit the fallout from Sonia Farak. Um, and there was no public disclosure other than a one sentence, apparently in a, I guess a WBUR article that apparently never merited any follow-up by, by the, the media, uh, that any of this stuff with standards was going on. Uh, and so uh, I think this, this has been a, a, a continual effort to minimize, suppress, misdirect what was going on in those labs. Um, and, and, uh, um, and I think once they got their convictions of Dukin and Farak, they could say uh, this matters behind us. It was just them. Okay, so do you guys want to hear the John Verner email last thing to all of the DAs across the land from 24 sure. September 2014? I won't read the whole thing because it's lengthy, but I'll read the first couple paragraphs. Folks, I understand you recently received information, and this is John Verner, who was Assistant Attorney General at the time. I understand you recently received information from the Inspector General's office regarding the Hinton Drug Lab in their labeling of substance known as BZP as a Class E substance. Late last week, the AAG and I had an opportunity to sit down with the Inspector General's office to discuss their findings regarding BCP. As you, as you have been made aware or already knew, BZP is a federally controlled Schedule One drug, but it is not actually illegal in Massachusetts. Therefore, it is incorrect um, legally to call BZP a controlled substance slash class E drug. During the discussion, we realized that the Amherst lab may have been uh, treating BZP in the same manner as Hinton. Based on that information, we spoke with Kristen Sullivan from the Mass State Police Lab. Uh, MSP lab has all, has the data from the Amherst lab. We have learned that the Mass uh, State Police Lab and the Amherst Lab have also been treating BZP in the same manner. Uh, Dan, although we, we do have some cases on the list, the good news is UMass Worcester told us that they did not call BZP a Class E substance. I have collected the name if you want to inquire further. Kristen Sullivan was kind enough to work quickly to identify all cases containing BZP from the Mass State Lab and the Amherst Lab. The spreadsheet contains cases from the Mass State Lab. In total, there were 36 cases that were called a Class E substance and should not have been. I understand you, you will be able to uh, look up the lab number in LIMS to get more information. The second spreadsheet is from the Amherst Lab. The first 38 cases are finding BZP only. Cases 39 to 198 are MDMA cases. Of those cases, column H reflects uh, where there is a combination of MDA and other drugs. I am told by the lab that there is a finding that the MDMA is, there is no legal issue because MDMA is a controlled substance in Massachusetts. The, the cases are listed here because MDMA and BZP are commonly found in ecstasy pills sometime in combination. This fact brings us to a third spreadsheet that I will forward in one minute. That spreadsheet outlines 35 cases containing BZP in addition to the substance of a higher class. That means that the pills tested contain BZP and another substance. Um, in summary, it looks like uh, there are 36 Mass State Police cases that were called Class E that should have been uh, around uh, 38 cases uh, from Amherst that were called Class E, which should not have been. 
So and that's just from that. Oh, go ahead. What's the date of that email? The date of that email is September 9th, 2014. Okay. So I'm not aware of, of any effort that the government, um, you know, engaged upon with CPCS in order to identify any of those cases. So it sounds like he was suggesting the email, some of them might not be a problem. You still want to tell the defendants about it. And it's unclear what, if any action, the DA's offices took in response to that letter. Yeah, it's, um, I, I don't think they took any response. I, I don't know if they, I, I asked if they had dismissed any of those cases and the answer was no. And, and so I'm sorry, the, the, that email was from 2014. Yes, Okay. So the most upsetting and troubling thing about that is that in 2016, uh, I, I know I apologize in, it, um, uh, what was the date of the OIG supplemental report? Uh, I can get that. That was, uh, February 2016. So, so two years later, the OIG completes a, I'll, I'll call it a mini investigation of BZP and I say mini because it merited a, a page uh, summary in their supplemental report. And their conclusion is limited to the, the Hinton lab and some uh, misclassification, although there's not a direct uh, uh, mea culpa there, uh, but there is some finding that there were improperly um, certified results. But they only mention Hinton, they don't mention Amherst, and they certainly don't mention the state police. Right. And that to me is shocking that you would know this. I mean, it was in, it was in your face. You have the email with Farrakh uh, and Dukin comparing notes. So you had at least probable cause to, I think, uh, take that one step further. And then there's an email that, Jamie, you found from the state police uh, uh, crime lab in 2011, where there is offered... Uh, a, 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 the most tortured possible logic for why the state police thought that BZP could be classified as class E. Yeah. And, and I don't, I'm not going to bore a, a listener with the tortured logic, but basically it's an attempt to, to shoehorn what manufacturers, uh, uh, what a reputable manufacturer of BZP um, should be doing to whatever guy in, the, in his basement lab is do, is, not, is not doing to be the, the, the justification for why somehow BZP magically becomes class E. Um, that would flunk basic English. Uh, and uh, uh, But what it is, is it's an admission that the state police were doing it. And I have not seen uh, a public uh, acknowledgement of that. No. And there's barely a public acknowledgement that this even went on. And I'm looking at the spreadsheet that they had. And a lot of the BZP cases were after that um, Julie Nazva's email from 20. Right. They continue to certify them as class E. And I believe the OIG said that that, or somebody suggested that that might've been a, a software glitch because when you, when you uh, go to print your la your cert, there's a drop down menu that defaults to, throw in the class and that they were supposed to deselect that and select and, and just say, we certify that this is BZP period. But that makes again, no sense because the lab policy and my understanding, all labs uh, as a policy matter simply will come back and say no narcotic detected or, or some, some phrase like that. So why you'd be in the business of certifying non-drugs 
and leaving it up to the prosecutor makes no sense anyway. But put that aside, it's, it's irrelevant. They continue to certify, um, at least at Hinton, uh, 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 BZP as a Class E substance when they knew it wasn't. Right. And it makes, I mean, that, even that makes more sense than the chemist figuring out what drugs are legal and what drugs aren't. The supervisor of a chemist lab. All right. So we're going to have more. Uh, I believe we're going to have uh, in a, in a soon, episode really soon, we're going to have a uh, victim of all of this, maybe not of BZP, but of these labs. We're going to actually have uh, an interview with someone who was affected by all this, which is great. Um, and we'll, we'll be going into more uh, Duke and stuff in later episodes as well. But uh, this has been great, guys. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground here. And if, you know, the media actually cared about, you know, laws, justice, things like that, they would be covering this because I know members of the media listen to this podcast, but uh, I highly doubt this will get any traction, but we'll see. We'll see. Thank you. Uh, thanks again for listening and uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button on your uh, podcast. This has been great. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the rig podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out.